0: to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together, we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. This week, I'm speaking to award winning novelist, screenwriter, critic, and short story writer William Boyd. William's first novel was published in 1981, and he's since gone on to publish a further 16 novels and countless short story collections together with works of non fiction and plays. A former television critic, he's also worked extensively as a screenwriter for both film and television. William's latest book, Trio, was published in October last year and will be out in paperback later this year. It truly is an honour to have him as a guest on the podcast today. William, welcome to Mostly Books Meetings.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah. Great pleasure to be here.
0: I'd like to start off, if you don't mind, by going back to your childhood. You were born in Ghana and grew up there in Nigeria and in Scotland. What do you remember about your childhood?
1: Well, I remember it very vividly because West Africa was effectively my home until my early 20s. I was actually born when Ghana was a British colony. That dates me. It was called the Gold Coast and independence came in 1957 when I was five. And we lived there until I was about 11 or 12. And then Ghana was hitting a sort of troubled phase. Then my family moved to Nigeria. And then we had three military coups and a civil war. So it was a tumultuous childhood and youth but unforgettable and exotic and vivid but because it was my home it was normal and once a year we would go back to Scotland on leave as it was called for about six weeks and then of course like all colonial kids of that era I was sent back to to boarding school. And again, I went to boarding school at the age of nine. And I spent nearly a decade at a boarding school, but every holiday I'd go back to Africa. So it was a very schizophrenic life in a way. But for me, home was always West Africa. And I knew the, the big cities of these African countries, Accra and Ibadan in Nigeria, much better than I knew any British city. So I'm a true colonial boy in a way.
0: Do you still regularly go back or is that something you're not doing?
1: No, I, I haven't been back uh, to either country. My parents left in the mid 1970s. And that was the last time I was in Nigeria, in fact. And in my early 20s, uh, my father became ill and you know had to come back to Scotland. And so I haven't been back to West Africa. I still have friends there and I'm in touch with them. And I was very involved in nigerian politics because a writer nigerian writer friend of mine was arrested by the military government and actually hideously and tragically was executed by them Um, so i had a kind of troubled uh, relationship with nigeria in particular but i have been back to africa many times i've made three films in africa but that's south africa which is a totally different country but um so my african connection has kept up but my connection with Ghana, Nigeria is in my memories. And in a way, I rather cherish them because both countries have changed so much. And I think if I went back, that what I see today would erase what I remember of my past. And so I'm rather, you know, I'm sort of reluctant to go back to Ghana, Nigeria, though I may well do one day, but I'm not in any Sharing hurry.
0: No, I know exactly what you mean. If you've got good memories of a place, then you kind of don't want to.
1: Yes, and I've really fed off those memories. I mean, I've written several novels that are set in Africa, and I've used my memories of living in the tropics to inform other novels. And I think that experience and the life I led, it's gone. You know, it's completely disappeared in the sense that there was no racial tension in West Africa, in the British Commonwealth countries in Ghana and Nigeria. As a kid, as a teenager, I could go anywhere at any time without fear. And so I I knew those cities and I knew the society incredibly well. And there was even in the worst of times when the Nigerian civil war was going on in the late 1960s, early 70s, I could travel on a bus with armed soldiers. And I never, ever felt threatened. And that wouldn't be the case today if I went back to these countries. So it was a wonderful, liberating experience and uh, and unique experience. And one, again, that I cherish and remember incredibly well.
0: Did you read a lot as a child?
1: Yes, I did. I was an avid reader. My mother was a teacher, in fact. She taught French in Nigerian schools. And my father was an avid reader of detective novels. He used to read one a day virtually. And um, <laughs> and uh, when I came back from school on holiday, there was this great towering pile of detective novels by <laughs> Ed McBain and Peter Chaney and Mickey Spillane and so on. And I used to read them as well. So it's a, a household full of books, even though it wasn't literary. And I learned to read very early, according to my mother. And I have been an avid reader ever since
0: ever stopped. Uh, What was the first book you remember reading?
1: Well, I remember reading an illustrated version of Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book. And I can see the book now in my mind's eye. It was a big, thick, large print book with um, black and white illustrations of the characters. And I think it made an impact on me. And I think I was about five or six when I was reading that. It made an impact on me because I was living in in an African country and the animals that, have, you know, monkeys and snakes and all sorts of large rodents and, uh, <laughs> and so on were part of my life. So in a way I sort of identified with Mowgli, you know, the central character of Kipling's book, and I romanticized my own African life. Because I could go anywhere and do anything. I would wander down to the bottom of our garden and walk into what was called the bush, which is the kind of savannah bush of Western Africa, and walk along pathways and see myself almost as a character in the Kipling novel. And it was it was a kind of romantic, it's a it's a strange book and a but a haunting book for a child. But you know i should have been living in india and reading it but living in africa and reading it was the next best thing
0: yeah i bet you were just waiting for the animals to start talking
1: uh, exactly
0: <laughs> it must have been very strange then living that i mean the lifestyle that you talk about there as a child just sounds simply magical to do that and then come to a boarding school here in the uk must have been quite a shock to the system how did you find that change
1: it was a shock i mean my boarding school was in the north of scotland as well and um, i was prepared for it because all children who were growing up in africa and these former british colonies knew that they would be sent back home to boarding school at some stage and so it was a wrench for my parents but not a wrench for me i'd sort of been programmed to expect it was going to come along but it was a it was strange and to, you know and as i've written the society of a single sex Boarding school is a very, very strange place, and it's a hothouse. And I spent nearly a decade in one, and I don't recommend it as a way of educating young people, to be <laughs> honest. There are certain things you gain from it. You become incredibly independent, but it's unnatural. You know, there's only one sex. Uh, you're away from your home. You're away from your parents. And particularly when I was at school from 1961 to 1970, we could never leave school during the okay. term. So we we were there for the full three months and no half terms. And it was a kind of penal servitude in a way. <laughs> of course, we didn't think anything of it. But when I look back on it, I saw it as a very strange society. And I wrote two films about boarding school life. I've written stories about it that boarding schools crop up in my novels. Because when I left after a decade there, I realized I had to re-educate myself, that in a way, I wasn't suited for normal life. I'd grown up in this strange environment. My adolescence had taken place amongst other adolescent boys, and I had to re-educate myself to be a proper citizen (laughs) of the world, it seemed (laughs) to me. And I said to my father, "I, I don't want to go straight to university. And this is quite President of me. So I wanted a kind of gap year before gap years even existed. And so he said, Well, you can have a year off, but you have to do something useful. You can't just swan around having fun. So I elected to do something that my mother had done. I went to a French university for an academic year, and I went, I chose Nice in the south of France. So I went to the University of Nice to do a, a diploma course. And it was during that year in Nice where I learned to speak French. So it was again away from my family, 1819, where my re-education took place, and I became—I like to think—someone who could fit into the world and enjoy the society that it had to offer.
0: What a lovely place to go and do that. Yeah, it's
1: fabulous. fabulous. I mean, a very important year in my life. I mean, I've written short stories about it, but it was a hugely important year because I was away from my culture. I was away from my friends. I was away from my language. I was renting a room in an old lady's house uh, just off the Promenade des Anglais. And it was a phenomenal change after 10 years at a boys' boarding school, as you can imagine. Yes. And, you know, scales fell from my eyes. And, you know, I think my life really sort of began there in a way. Yeah,
0: haven't looked back. And then you went on to University of Glasgow and actually then ended up in Oxford, just down the road from where we are. Um,
1: yes, well, I know, I know Abingdon well. I, uh, yes, I had my year at uh, the University of Nice. And it was, as I say, a fantastic, you know, formative very important year for me. And then I went to Glasgow University, where my grandfather had gone, in fact. And I read English literature and philosophy at university there. And, and the Scottish university courses are four years long. Mm-hmm. So again, it was very important. It's the first time I'd lived in a city, apart from Nice. But to spend four years in Glasgow, which is a big, vibrant place, and the, the university is in a very distinct bit of town. It's almost like a campus, you know. It's a very old university and big, tens of thousands of students. And so it was, again, a, a sort of introduction to normal life for me, you know. And I enjoyed my years at Glasgow hugely, not least because I met my wife, Susan, there. But I started writing there. I wrote a short story that won a short story competition for the English department. I became a student journalist. I wrote for the university newspaper. I did film reviews and theater reviews. And I actually wrote a novel while I was at university because oh I because I was thinking, you know, was, I think it was at Nice, I thought, what the hell am I going to do in the rest of my life? And I somehow had this hunch that I couldn't have a normal job. And I, I had this vague desire to be an artist, not that I knew any artists, but I just, I must have seen a film and thought, well, the artistic life is for me. Uh, But how do you become a a writer? How do you become a novelist? And I had to find my way and find my feet and educate myself. But it's all started at university. And I wrote a novel, very autobiographical, all about a young British Chap who goes to the University of Nice, surprise, surprise, and got it out of my system, you know, put it in a bottom drawer where it still resides. But I had the experience of writing a full length novel all about myself and I recommend that to young writers you know do it and then sort of throw it away if you like because you think you're the most fascinating person on the planet but you're not but you have to get that delusion out of your system and then start writing proper novels so it was a very again another important you know watershed moment in my life my years at Glasgow University it's the first time I met writers because In a very enlightened way, that university had a writers in residence, and I met my first proper professional writers, and I got a very good degree, and I went on to Oxford to do a PhD, or a DPhil as it's known in Oxford, partly because I wanted to buy myself more time, and partly because... I felt that if my dreams of being a writer didn't come off, or I couldn't hack it, I could become an academic and teach English literature. So I had two motivations, but what Oxford gave me as a postgraduate student was years and years of time in which to try my hand at fiction and see if I could become a novelist. And slowly but surely, I did.
0: (laughs) I was going to say it happened, didn't it? Your first book was published whilst you were at Oxford, is that correct? Yes,
1: it wasn't an overnight success by any means. I went to Oxford and I you know, had to write my thesis, which was on, on Shelley, in fact, and the romantic movement. But I wrote two more novels while I was you know, writing my thesis. And I wrote a lot of journalism as well. I was writing for the university magazine ISIS. And I also entered short story competitions that ISIS ran. And the first one I entered was judged by Iris Murdoch oh my
0: goodness.
1: and I got second prize and, you know, wow. 10 pound book token. And the the next one I entered was judged by Roald Dahl because oh, uh, <laughs> they were all they all lived around Oxford. Uh, Iris Murdoch lived in Oxford. Roald Dahl lived in... Uh, I think he lived in Chiltern somewhere, uh, Great Missenden or something like that. And the, the one that Royal Dahl judged, I got third prize. So I thought, well, I better stop entering competitions because clearly <laughs> the direction is uh, downhill. And actually, it's true because I then wrote another, I entered a science fiction short story competition judged by Brian Aldiss, uh, who's a science fiction writer. And Brian, who I like, became a very good friend, didn't award me a prize. (laughs) So I didn't hold it against him. But again, it's part of the process of finding your feet and discovering what it is to be a writer. And I wrote two unpublished novels. One was a book about the Nigerian Civil War, a novel about that, very experimental. And the other was a thriller about a young poet, in fact. But at the same time, I was writing these short stories and sending them out to little magazines. In those days, this is the late 1970s, there were lots of places that published short stories. The BBC used to have a program called Morning Story, for Monday to Friday, five days a week, 52 weeks of the year. So they had a ravening more for stories. It had to be a very precise length. I remember 2,300 words equals 15 minutes on the radio. (laughs) And I had stories published there and in little magazines, and slowly but surely, I had nine or 10 stories published. And I sent off this collection of short stories to a publisher, Hamish Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And I sent it to the managing director and said, I've also written a novel that a character in two of these short stories features. And he wrote back to me very quickly and said, we'd like to publish your collection of short stories, but we'd like to publish it after your novel. And the only problem was I actually hadn't written the novel. (laughs) (laughs) I was lying. So I wrote back to, I you was know, thrilled. It's a, a magic moment in a young writer's career when your book is accepted. And so I wrote back to this man, his name is Christopher Sinclair Stevenson, became my editor. And I said, the typescript of the novel is in a shockingly bad state. I need to retype it. <laughs> Give me a few weeks. And so I sat down at the kitchen table. I borrowed some money from my mother because I was teaching as well at the time. And I wrote my first published novel a good man in Africa in a kind of white, hot spirit of dynamic enthusiasm in about 10
0: weeks.
1: (laughs) And then sent it in as if I'd just been tidying up the typescript. I did tell my editor later, my white lie, and he's forgiven me. And in fact, that's what happened This was in 1979, and I had to wait the whole of 1980 before my book was published in January 1981, and that's when my first published novel came out, A Good Man in Africa, but actually it was my fourth novel, when you think about it. I'd written three novels as kind of apprentice works, and I think that's how I'd learned how to write novels, you know, on-the-job learning experience, and so... My first novel was actually quite a polished, sophisticated piece of work, and it did very well. It looked like I had sort of sprung, you know, into the literary world, you know, fully formed. But in fact, it had been the usual, you know, many years of hard graft before A Good Man was published. And it was a great success. It won three prizes, it was picked up for paperback by Penguin, picked up by foreign publishers, America, France, you know, Scandinavia. And so my so-called debut seemed like an enormous success. But in fact, it was the result of, you know, many years of hard work that had started in the early 1970s at Glasgow University.
0: I do hear this time and time again when I speak to writers that the most important thing is literally just putting pen to paper. It's the advice you hear. For anyone who wants to try and make a go of it, it's, you've just got to do it, haven't you?
1: Yes. I mean, it's. I always quote Maupassant used to say to writers, put black on white, ink on white paper. Just start writing. And even if you then at the very least have something to throw away, if well, you're still done. scratching your head and thinking, you know, you haven't written anything. So it's very good advice. Just put something down on paper. And usually that stimulates you to carry on.
0: So, obviously, that was your first novel. And obviously, as yeah. I said in the introduction, you've gone on and had a resounding success in so many different areas of your work. I mean, fast forward to today, if you don't mind, yeah. you now split your time between London and the south of France.
1: Southwest France, Atlantic side, not the Mediterranean side. It's big, very important. It's quite a different scene in the rural southwest France from the, <laughs> the flesh pots of the Côte d'Azur. But I, I spend about quarter of the year there. And basically I live in London. We have a house in France, an old farmhouse, and we go there all year round where we used to before Brexit. And so it's a very important part of my life, but it's not a 50-50 division. I spend about three to four months of the year there.
0: Lovely. And I know when we first tried to schedule this podcast interview, you were actually out in France and were staying there during some of the lockdowns. Yeah. How's it been for you this last year? Obviously, we've all been through a very strange year. Have you found that you've been spending more time there or, or have you been in London during lockdown? How I, have you been generally?
1: Well, I have spent a lot more time in France. I was I've actually just back. I was kind of trapped there very happily for three months, went down before Christmas and got back at the end of March. But as a writer... Yeah it really hasn't affected me that much because, you know, writing is a self-isolating profession. And in fact, I've been incredibly busy because there are films being made and TV dramas being made. But the one thing producers can guarantee is that they've got a great supply of writers sitting at home (laughs) twiddling their thumbs. So I've actually been very busy writing screenplays and television series during this last year. But as a person, as a citizen, of course, it's been the same as everybody's experience. I haven't traveled anywhere, particularly. I miss my society of friends. You know, my mother died last year. I couldn't go to a funeral, you know. Um, so there are all these sort of COVID experiences, as ones I've shared with the rest of the population. But... Professionally, it's actually been in some ways almost an enhancement because obviously no literary festivals going on. But just as you and I are talking on Zoom, I mean, I've participated in literary festivals in Hong Kong, Australia, Hawaii, Without leaving my study. So uh, I wouldn't have gone to the literary festivals, of course, because they're too far away. But somehow the wonders of technology have allowed writers to put themselves about in a way that they wouldn't do if they were having to get on planes and things like that.
0: Yeah, I think it really has opened up a whole other avenue, and it'll be really interesting to see as time goes on how this evolved, because obviously people mm. want to get back into a room, want to be meeting people face-to-face, but this, like you say, it's given people access to information and content that we wouldn't yeah. necessarily have had before.
1: I've been going to literary festivals for so long that I'm actually thinking of calling a halt to them. But of course, with Zoom, you can do literary festivals anywhere, and uh, I mentioned those countries I'd been to, but I've also done a festival in Milan. I've been on a sort of virtual book tour in Germany. You know, it's quite extraordinary. So (laughs) I think I will do a lot more remotely than in person because it does tend to eat into your time traveling Mm -hmm. to here, there and everywhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As you said earlier on, you're a voracious reader. You have been since you were a child. Have you found during lockdown that you've been reading more than you would have done normally less, or has it pretty much stayed the same?
1: No, I think I'm a massively compulsive reader, and I'm also a sort of chronic book buyer as well. I have a, <laughs> a terrible problem of buying books and storing books, and I'm in the process of just started another novel. And one of the things I like to do is that I like to have a kind of library in my study of books for that novel. So I buy them secondhand on the internet, but I've bought about, I think, maybe 250 books this year oh for this novel that I'm, I've am i just started now. And it's a kind of just reassuring. You know, I, could, I can do a lot of research online, of course, but I actually, being of that generation, like to look up books and read look go through indexes and bibliographies and and cherry pick stuff I need for my novel. So I've been reading avidly. I mean in the last week I've read a biography of Monica Jones, who was Philip Larkin's girlfriend. Oh yes. Which has just come out. Fascinating. Misunderstood figure, bit of a monster, but it's interesting to get her side of the story. And that took me on to read a new biography of Philip Larkin. And I'm also reading a biography of Robert Louis Stevenson, plus all the research I did. So I'm that's typical. You know, I often have five or six books on the go at any one time. I'm reading The French Lieutenant's Woman by John Fowles again, as well. And that took me to his journals and to his Biography, so that's typical of you know, the reading of this last week. But it's it's always a bit like that. I always have masses of books on the go, pick them up, put them down, you know, return to them, and so on. But you know, I think from my youngest days, you know, when my father's stacking up those crime novels by my bedside. I've always read constantly, every day, something new. And I feel sorry for people who don't love reading. They don't know what they're missing in life. (laughs) Of course, lockdown is the classic example. People who didn't read suddenly had acres of time on their hands. And maybe let's hope there's a new generation of readers come about as a result of being forced to stay at home with nothing but a book to keep you company.
0: We've definitely found quite a lot of our customers have said to us that they found time to read more. But we've had new faces in the shop when we've been open saying exactly that. You know, they've said time and an inclination to want. Yes,
1: exactly. Exactly. It's a good thing.
0: Mm. So your latest book, Trio, was published in October last year and it did incredibly well. did incredibly well for us Mm. in the run-up for Christmas. It's coming out in hardback and will be out in paperback later this year. I'm always fascinated when I talk to people about their books, about where the ideas come from. It sounds like you've already partially answered that with the books that you get in and the kind of yeah. ideas that flow around. But this particular book, it centers on three people in Brighton in the sixties. Where did those characters come from? Cause they're all quite distinct characters. How did they come about? Yes,
1: it's interesting. I mean, all my novels are different from each other and the ideas, the sort of source ideas for them are often very simple or, or strange. And, Trio came about because I suddenly had this idea to write a short book that consisted of three books telling the same story from different points of view. And I had this conception that actually if I had three books of different colors, like, say, red, blue and green, you could read them in any order and get construct your own narrative. So you could read green, blue, and red. You could read blue, red, and green. But mysteriously or miraculously, those three discrete stories would actually add up to nine potential combinations. Yeah but i realized actually that this was a gimmick and not a serious <laughs> enterprise so i blocked it all out so i had this idea of three stories three characters in my head and that was the source of trio and the linking element between the three stories was that each of these characters had a secret life and i think everybody has a secret life everyone has an inner life that is entirely theirs and inviolate in a way and i got very interested in this idea. And I'm a great lover of Chekhov and Chekhov's short stories. And there's a quote that Chekhov said, where he makes a remark that everybody leads their real most interesting life under cover of secrecy. And that became my motto. And I use it as an epigraph for the novel. And it's true that each of these characters has a secret life. And in the course of the novel as we follow their progress, they're all linked to this rather silly film that's being shot in Brighton in 1968. As we follow their progress through the summer of 1968, in a way their secret lives overtake their public lives and everything is changed by the end of the book as a result. That was the source of the the novel, this, this rather crazy idea of creating a mix and match story that uh, you, the reader, could construct at your whim. But I uh, I don't think I'll ever go back to that idea. But you can see in the, in Trio, hence the title, and we cut from the different points of view of the three characters, and we follow their lives, and they touch on each other, but they don't overlap particularly. So it's uh, it works very well, I think. And I was a bit worried that having three narratives in one novel would be confusing in the sense that one narrative would dominate but in fact it wasn't the case at all all three lives as we follow them i think are equally compelling
0: yeah i agree it's very interesting that actually the the trouble narrative i think divides opinion quite a lot i'm a huge fan of it i really like it i like dual time frames as well yes Um, but we do get some customers that come in and just say oh it's just too confusing yes but i think in this instance it works delightfully well so yes I'm also really fascinated because you mentioned you've been really busy this last year and you mentioned screenwriting, which obviously you've done a lot of. How does the experience of writing a book compare with writing a screenplay? I imagine they're quite different.
1: Yes, they are. And I've actually written a lot of journalism about it. I think film, and by film, I mean television or anything shot with a camera and the novel are actually completely distinct art forms. Mm -hmm. People have this tendency to think they're somehow very closely related, but as somebody who's done both, and, and I've actually directed a feature film as well, um, called The Trench, a World War I movie. And I'm very involved in all the productions of my films. And so I move from the world of the novel to the world of the movie or television. And I see the huge difference between the two art forms. And I can make it clear very simply, I think, and it sounds a bit stupid, but the thing that governs film is that film is photography. Sounds very obvious, but when you think a bit further about it, everything is seen through the lens of a camera. And that means that the story you're telling is perforce incredibly objective. You are always on the outside looking on. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the novel, in a way, it's defining power is its ability to enter the minds of other people. Mm-hmm. The novel is effortlessly subjective. I can write about the thoughts and the feelings of a character in incredible detail for the benefit of the reader. By contrast, when you move to a cinema or film, it's very, very hard to do that because it's photography. And the tools you have to make film subjective are very reduced in a way. You can use voiceover mm-hmm. and you can hear what a character is thinking, but that only goes so far and it can become tiresome if it's used too much. You can have good acting, <laughs> But of course, the very best actor in the world cannot replicate the subtleties and nuances of one paragraph of a novel. They can do angry or they can do shamefaced or they can do wistful, but that's about as complicated as it gets. And the other thing you could do is use the camera as point of view to see what somebody is seeing. And that's about it. So, coming from the massive total freedom of the novel to the world of film, you leave a world of infinite generosity and you come to a world of parameters and compromises and impossibilities mm. and so for me as a writer the two art forms are entirely different and the pleasures I get from the novel are obvious but the pleasures I get from working in cinema are entirely different and almost they're more social than, <laughs> than literary I like hanging out with actors and I like collaborating and that's what film allows me to do but the two art forms I think are miles and miles apart even though they're both narratives, but in terms of what freedoms you have, they're hugely different.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I imagine the mixture of the two—you, the fact that you spend some time writing novels and other times working yes. in the film world—must be quite lovely to be able to, like you say, have that mixture. Yeah,
1: it's very good for me as an individual. I think gets me out of the house. You know, and uh, <laughs> but I also started writing plays and had three plays produced, and I must say, for a writer the collaboration you have in the theatre is in a way even better because for a play you usually have six weeks rehearsal and if you as the writer go to those rehearsals you have the director of the play and you have the actors who are going to be in the play and your text is picked apart line by line and actors are often very smart and shrewd and so the organic process of Putting the play on is very stimulating and very creative, whereas in a movie or in a television series, you might get together for one read-through, and then there's a bit of rehearsal on the day of filming, and that's it. So for a writer who wants to collaborate, in a way, the theatre is far more fulfilling than the world of film and TV. But all the same, it is a collegiate effort. You know, there are many shoulders to the wheel. And I actually like that because I have my perfect solitude, my perfect autonomy writing a novel.
0: Say so Many, many spokes.
1: So yes. Well, I think that's part of the plan in the sense that I think it's very British, actually. Many British writers seem to be quite prolific. Many of my contemporaries, they write a lot of journalism, they write films, they write biographies, they write libretti, whatever. It's part of our cultural tradition that if you're a writer, you write a lot. Whereas in other worlds that I know, like in the USA or in France, for example, writers seem positively constipated sometimes to me. (laughs) One novel every ten years, you must be joking. So uh, I think it's the great Victorians, you know, Dickens, Zachary, Trollope, these people, these incredible powerhouses of writers who that's sort of in our blood, as it were. And so you know, I write something every day. You know, if I'm not writing fiction, I can write my journal. I write reviews. I write, you know, I'm always writing something. Almost every day I've written something. Good to be busy. Mm.
0: Now, I have a theory about everybody that reads and everybody that writes, which is that if you are a reader, there is a book or maybe a selection of books that have had a major significant impact on you. And that could be personally, it could be professionally. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is the book?
1: Well, I'm going to answer twice, I think. I have a book that I always recommend as my favorite novel, and it's by Vladimir Nabokov, and it's called Pale Fire. And Pale Fire is a unique novel. You can't say that about many things, but it's a 999-line rhyming couplet poem and about 300 pages of footnotes to that poem. And and it's very, very funny, as well as being very, very clever. And the funny thing is that the editorial figure who's writing the footnotes to the poem has got it totally and utterly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) He thinks the poem is all about him, but in fact it isn't. And so this extraordinary novel is actually one of the great comic novels of all time, I think. And it's because it's Vladimir Nabokov, who's one of my favorite writers, it's beautifully written as well. And the poem stands up on its own. It's an extraordinary piece of work. So that's the book I always recommend. And the Russian theme continues because at the moment I mentioned Anton Chekhov. But it's Anton Chekhov, the short story writer, who I sort of revere. And I've written a lot about Chekhov. One of my plays is based on two of his short stories. He's a most fascinating man. But I think the extraordinary thing about Chekhov's stories, which were written, the mature stories written in the last decade of the 19th century, they could have been written yesterday because the spirit and the view of the human condition is so incredibly modern. And I find I reread Chekhov's stories constantly, and I find myself very in sympathy with his view of the human condition. So If you like, the pale fire is the writer in me, and Chekhov's stories chime with my view of life because he's not a particularly flamboyant writer, Chekhov, but he was a doctor. He had tuberculosis. He knew from the age of 23 that he was going to die young. And I think that affected his way, how wouldn't it? It Affected the way he viewed life and affected the way he behaved in life as well. And I think that is responsible for his very modern, secular blackly humorous take on human beings, and I find it incredibly congenial and very wise as well. And so they're the two Russian writers, oddly, that I recommend to people.
0: There's a theme, there's a theme. Mm. So we talked about the fact that obviously Trio came out last year and you mentioned the fact that you're working on screenplays and you're also working on another novel, so it sounds like you've got lots going on. For the fans of your novels, what can they expect to see from you next?
1: I'm hoping that the next thing that I've written will be on television. Um, I it's, mean, it's just come out in the US. It's a Cold War spy thriller I wrote six hours long, set in the summer of 1961, in Berlin, and that's the summer before the Berlin Wall went up. And so it's called Spy City, and it stars Dominic Cooper as the lead. Oh, really? Yes. And it's been released in Germany because it's a German-American co-production, and it's just come out last week in the USA on a streamer. And I'm hoping sometime in the next few months it'll pop up on British TV because it's being sold around the world. So that's been made, and it's done, and it's out there. But I'm writing a new novel, which I hope will be out at the end of next year. So I'll write it throughout the course of this year and deliver it early 2021. And it should be out in October 2021. And that is a scoop for you, Sarah. Um, it's set exclusively in the 19th century. It's the most historical book I've ever written. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, And it's a long one as well. It's a 500 pager, I think. Hence the number of books I have to buy. But <laughs> uh, So that will be out at the end of next year. But with a bit of luck, my Cold War spy thriller should be on a screen near you sometime soon.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it. And in the meantime, we'll continue to tell people about Trio and make sure that they take it away with them when they come into our shop. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been absolutely lovely chatting to you. It's been so fascinating hearing about your journey and I wish you all the best for everything you're working on at the moment and thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Sarah. It's a great pleasure.
0: All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and
1: subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.